flexible muni market is is a pretty important component to uh, to focus on. You know, especially as wealth grows and focus on inequality becomes more of an issue. Welcome back to the Public Money Pod, a production of the Center for Municipal Finance at the University of Chicago's Harris School of Public Policy. And of course, we are proudly sponsored by the Government Finance Officers Association, Build America Mutual, MuniPro, and Odyssey Advisors. I'm Justin Marlowe, and I'm joined, as always, by my intrepid co-host and disciplinarian of felines, (laughs) poultry enthusiast, Liz Farmer. Liz, welcome back. Thanks, Justin. I have an update on on the the cat actually it was something we discovered recently about her confirming our suspicions that she is smarter than our dog. Sorry, Quinn. <laughs> um, but uh, but yeah, we discovered she likes to play fetch, <laughs> and she'll actually like oh. go chase the toy, put it in her, you know just like a dog, bring it back and drop it and look like look at you. And we were like, wow, this is really cool. So now we finally have an animal wow. that plays fetch. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's way more interactive than most cats, that's for yeah. sure. Very exciting, very exciting. Terrific. Well, we are uh, today talking about uh, some, some trends in the municipal bond market, which is, of, of course, a, a running topic on this podcast, in part because we both know a lot about it and I think it's a really important part of state and local public finance, but also because there's been some really interesting recent trends as of late that we want to highlight having to do with kind of the intersection of, of two themes. One is the ongoing shift in um, who buys municipal bonds. And the second is there's technological innovation and the role of technological innovation in the municipal bond market and some of the interesting challenges and opportunities that that's creating, especially for issuers. And we're very lucky to have uh, to help us unpack some of these trends. James Pruskowski from 16 Rock Asset Management to tell us about his view from inside the market, from the, the buy side of the market and what that means for the way states and localities School districts, everyone else who borrows money ought to think about issuing bonds. So, Liz, when we when we get into this, um, these kinds of questions about the the internal workings of the municipal bond market, it's always helpful to remind everyone of how this works, right? If I'm a state or a local government, I go out and I issue bonds for the purpose of building roads, building a new school building, repairing sewers, whatever it is. I, you know, I sell these bonds. I basically take out a loan. And then somebody has to be on the other end of that transaction, right? We have to have a buyer, somebody willing to lend money to a government. And that becomes the core of what we would call the municipal bond market. It's about a $4 trillion market these days. And of that $4 trillion, depending on which numbers you look at, you know, about two-thirds of that $4 trillion is really individuals at the end of the day. It's mom and pop investors who are saving for retirement, saving for college, whatever it might be, they have a, a desire to have a tax-exempt, reliable, steady income flowing into their personal coffers. And between the what we call the, the household side of the market, that is individuals going out and buying bonds through their broker or their financial advisor, and then also the sort of what we might call the institutional side of the retail market, that is mutual funds, exchange-traded funds, other investment products that are packaged by professionals, but still ultimately purchased by individuals, you know, they account for about two thirds of that market. One of the really interesting trends that we've seen as of late is that the the way by which individuals access these bonds has shifted a bit. And we're going to hear a lot more from James Priskowski about an important innovation called separately managed accounts or SMAs, 
which is a way for individual investors to kind of have their cake and eat it too. They can have all the <laughs> benefits of working through a large institutional advisory type of operation, but they also get to kind of customize and go out and buy what they want rather than having to buy the product that's offered up to them by some, by a Fidelity or a Vanguard or a very large institutional investor. This really gets at the question of, you know, what what is it that investors are looking for when they go out and they buy municipal bonds? Certainly the old standby is they're looking for tax-exempt income. If I buy these bonds, I don't pay particularly federal income taxes on the interest that I earned. And in many states, I don't pay state. In many cities, I don't even pay uh, local income taxes. New York City bonds famously have been triple tax-free, as mm -hmm. they say, for a long time. If you buy them, you don't pay city, state, or federal income taxes on them. So tax-exempt income is an important part of it for sure. But then beyond that, there's a whole set of questions about what is it that investors respond to? And I think one of the things we find in the muni space is that investors respond to all kinds of interesting information, some of it more predictable, some of it less predictable. You've been in the space a long time. You've written a lot of stories over the years about what it is that investors are watching for and what they're responding to. You zoom out a little bit and look back on the totality of that experience. So what are your thoughts on that question? Yeah, I think ever since the the Great Recession and the uh, near collapse of the the bond insurance industry, that there has certainly been a trend towards municipalities, particularly the bigger ones that have the staff to to have like an investor relations department or arm. But municipalities really form, forming more direct relationships with investors, particularly the bigger ones, and that and I, and that goes for individual investors too. I I remember. It was like in the early to mid 2000, 2010, sorry, that uh, the state of Massachusetts launched a, a website and did like a direct to you know retail bond sale, opening it up to Massachusetts re residents first and then then the general audience, sort of like a Taylor Swift concert. But <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if it would be more expensive, actually. I don't know what how much Taylor <laughs> Swift ticket costs. <laughs> this, uh, a, a muni market version of a Taylor Swift concert <laughs> would be way to, more fun. That's yeah, for sure. yeah, I had to get the Taylor Swift reference back in there again. <laughs> um, but, you know, and that was, I remember like a really cool, new, innovative thing, but that, that it certainly was the start of, of many other types of things like that, where municipalities are really wanting to, to kind of bypass the credit agencies. There was no bond insurance at that time really to, to wrap themselves around with. Um, so it was about messaging to those people and institutions, but really people who are directly buying those bonds. And I think that is something that has just that municipalities have gotten better and better at. And and also I think to to investors credit, they have become more directly interested too in, in terms of the fiscal health of, of cities and, and governments and the bonds that they buy in general. Bond insurance has come back, um, but it's it's different now than it than it was before. And it's it's not what it was before to me seems like something that was and people literally call it a cloak over the bonds right so it's it's the wrapping around it you don't see what's underneath and bond insurance is, is different from that now it's something that either the the issuer will seek itself before going out to a sale or an investors are certainly coming to it after after a bond sale i know that a number of investors in early to mid 2020 when there's a lot of craziness in in all the markets but in the municipal market too more investors went towards bond insurance too, just as a, you know, just in case. So I think all of that just speaks to greater, larger education of investors in municipal bonds and and certainly in the, the relationship, direct relationship between investors and municipalities. 
Agreed. Yeah, the the uh, financial economist term for that trend to to make it sound fancier than it is is to to quote commoditize the market. Right? That was the <laughs> argument was that insurance really commoditized the market. But you're absolutely correct. I mean, to commoditize means to take something and, and make it like everything else. And we didn't necessarily make Muni credit similar. What we did was we put this additional layer of information on top that investors really responded to. And as you said today, the challenge really is telling a story about what lies beneath. And some jurisdictions are doing that really, really well. And as we hear from uh, James Pruskowski and other market experts, it's really, really important to get that word out because investors now are responding to that information in lots of ways. And they have the tools to be able to access that information for a lot of different kinds of issuers at once. So it's sort of a brave new world that way if you are borrowing money in the muni market and need to tell a story that investors are going to respond to. Well, we're pleased to welcome to the Public Money Pod, James Pruskowski, who is the Chief Investment Officer at 16 Rock Asset Management. James, thanks for joining us today on the Public Money Pod. Thanks, Justin. I'm really glad to have you. This is a very, I don't want to say obscure topic, but this might be one of the most in the weeds topics we've tried to tackle here on the Public Money Pod. So I'm going to start off by asking you, uh, we're here to talk about separately managed accounts. Can you kind of give us the quick lay of the land? What are they and, and how they're different? These accounts are different maybe from like a typical retail investor bond portfolio? Yeah, I mean, um, you know, separately managed accounts, otherwise known as uh, SMAs, are really where there's only one individual owner as opposed to a pooled vehicle, which uh, you own share classes of, you know, very different than a mutual fund or ETF. Client really owns the bonds, um, not subject to any of the collateral damage that a, that a fund or, a, you know, an ETF would have and uh, really can can set out their own specific objectives and constraints and guidelines to create a highly customized approach to the overall market in terms of maturity criterias, rating spectrums, and really get down in the weeds in terms of personalization. You know, the product has, has been really designed around high net worth individuals and various organizations too, such as, uh, you know, corporations, foundations, endowments, and in the taxable market, pension funds. Um, and that, that personalization and avoiding a lot of the collateral damage is really key to, uh, to the su success. Um, you know, these individuals have lifestyles. They have passive income needs. They have performance objectives. They own real estate in different places and don't want to double down on risk. Corporations, for example, have a lot of liabilities and, and how do you asset and liability manage for a better outcome? And it's, um, it's doing it in a way that's very client centric in terms of approach. Um, you're just not another share, uh, share owner. You, you really own the outcome here. You know, I'd say that the, the biggest differences between an SMA and uh, the vehicles, ETFs and, and mutual funds, for argument's sake, is really defining what that objective is. Are you index based? Are you hitting a certain uh, income target? Are you trying to optimize tax? Very much different than a, than, a, than a fund or an ETF that's designed around an index per se and matching that index, even with bad credits, just eliminate the beta. And, you know, the SMAs go a long way in terms of creating tax efficiency. And what I mean that is, is really getting into the weeds of what is the exact liability for the, the, the owner of the, the SMA. And I think they go, uh, you know, a long way in terms of providing transparency. And we're talking real time. 
the SMA is a highly customized business, it's important to appreciate that no two clients are alike. And when you construct an SMA, it's highly customized. I mean, we spend days, weeks, months studying balance sheets, being a good listener and understanding what those liabilities and those objectives and those risk tolerances are to, to really come up with a thoughtful solution in, in terms of portfolio construction. You know, it's really um, understanding that and making sure that you're partnering up the right service provider to, to deliver that, that, that proper execution. Is there um, like an average net worth of individuals who have SMAs or, or and could you give an example of like what, what an SMA, what, what someone might want to be their goal for, for their separately managed account? The trends in the industry have changed over the last several years and, you know, there's cost effective solutions now being provided from a, a lot of different service providers at lower fees and for better or worse driven by ETFs in terms of the, the compression that that's creating within the industry. But to achieve lower fees in a, in a mutual fund, you really have to be a qualified investor for the institutional share class to even get somewhere close. So, you know, there's been a, a ton of progress in the industry including here at 16 Rock in terms of trying to lower the minimum requirements for SMAs. And we're talking, you know, all the way down to, to 500,000, if not lower, to really help drive the benefits and provide the solutions that clients are, are looking to achieve. Um, so I'd say both the fees and minimum requirements have been changing over the years. And, you know, again, I mean, the flexibility that SMAs have provided over, over funds has really been one of the biggest home runs. You know, the objective here is to work closely with an institution or an, in, or an individual to really understand their lifestyles and liabilities and target objectives and to develop a, a, a really thoughtful solution and what that means in terms of outcomes. You mentioned the trends in the industry, and part of the reason that we're that we're having this conversation today is because within the last few months, we've seen lots of industry commentary pointing out um, how SMAs have, in some ways, overtaken other parts of the traditional retail part of the muni market. There's there's more in SMAs now than in just about any other mutual fund or individual portfolios, which is, I think, a huge development and something we haven't really talked all that much about. I wonder if you could. Help us understand that a little bit. What What's driving what is clearly a, a lot of growth in this space? It sounds like it's well over a trillion dollars in, in assets under management now in the space. What's driving that growth? And is it uh, is it that there's more high net worth folks? Or is it, as you said, some technological sorts of solutions that make it easier to, to offer this kind of product? Uh, help us understand a little bit more about why we're seeing such a, such a huge growth in this space. Yeah, yeah good question, Justin. Yeah, I mean, I think it's in part a couple things, thanks to the broadening of the, the wealthy universe and the people that qualify or, you know, have the ability to create an SMA is one thing. The other part of it, too, is just, you know, there's more service providers out there. You know, a lot of these these big brand shops or even small boutiques that have popped up over the years, including our, ourselves, are just, you know, trying to deliver boutique services in a more dedicated way, in a more thoughtful way. So the simple fact that there's more service providers out there... It, with the ability to, to reach more clients is another. You know, we also live in a world where people are more closely looking at asset liability and lifestyles and focused on retirement. So the educational process throughout the, the last several decades and what that proper portfolio balance is um, has been another. 
you know, you can't discount as well the fact that there's been a regulatory environment change, given the big banks and the old FA model and the whole in transition to independent RIAs. It's just an easier universe to navigate now that avoids conflict. And, um, you know, the regulatory environment has been a, another big transition. You know, we talked about fees and, and the compression that's going on. So, you know, you could finally ask access, you know, a highly customized approach within SMA is what you've always tried to achieve with mutual funds that, that just weren't never really offered in a more scalable way now. Thanks to technology, there's been tremendous advances at a, a, you know, all over the street in terms of how do you scale, how do you minimize operating events, and how do you deliver back that transparency. That so the, the mega trend of technology has certainly been a been a tremendous tailwind. I hesitate to even bring it up, but I think it's worth bringing up uh, the dreaded three letters ESG uh, when you were talking about you know, goals, portfolio goals, and we certainly you hear a lot anecdotally about a lot of high net worth folks who are coming into the space now with an eye toward ESG and sustainability and impact. You know, is that a piece of these broader trends that you're describing or should we think of that as something separate and apart from the growth in SMAs in particular? Yeah, I would think about that a little bit differently. Here domestically, it's it's more of a grassroots movement. There's no top-down regulatory environment that mandates corporations or individuals to, you know, achieve a tax credit or some kind of capital efficiency. A lot of it relates to corporate responsibility missions and uh, philanthropic interests to make impact, to, to finance certain projects or certain demographic areas to do better for tomorrow. There is different things going on throughout the world. So in Europe, for example, the UN Sustainable Development Goals are more of a top-down driver. And there are use cases for muni bonds, specifically taxable munis, given the international audience that has, um, that has helped some of the transition or promoted it, some of it in the SMA world. So it's not just the, the tax exempt status of, of municipal bonds; it's taxable muni bonds too that are that are drawing some attention. Yeah, most definitely. I mean, so look, munis are a four trillion dollar market. There's over a million securities outstanding. There's over fifty thousand different issuers. One of the biggest changes, really, that got jump started in twenty nine ten, given the birth of Build America bonds, was the growth of the taxable muni asset class. After that program ended, things started to die down, but later picked up as rates dropped and issuers were looking for alternative sources of lowering interest expense and managing capital market access. You know, maybe the, the, the market's not paying attention, though, to, you know, some of the changes that have happened from a global regulatory landscape. Traditionally, domestically, we've been focused mostly on the National Association of Insurance Commissions and some of the things, unique things that they do and credits that they provide for for certain institutions, we obviously focus on state taxation and what that means for the wealthy and how they could keep more of what they earn. But related to taxable munis, Solvency II, which governs um, you know life insurers in the, in the European Union, was amended in 2016 to include U.S. infrastructure assets. And we don't sell our infrastructure the same way as other countries do. And most of the, the, the financing of infrastructure is done vis-a-vis -vis the muni market. And thanks to low rates, we've had uh, about a trillion in outstanding of taxable muni debt. It's more of an institutional market with bigger bullet and maturities, bigger tr uh, trade lot sizes, and capital efficiency that complies to regulatory code. James, given everything we've we've talked about here with the growth in the space, the types of credits that are, are most attractive to 
SMA investors. I'm wondering if we could maybe turn the uh, the telescope a little bit and focus on the issuer's perspective. So, you know, hypothetically, say you are a uh, a mayor or a CFO of a public utility or some big issuer. Where are the opportunities to take advantage of the growth in the Muni SMA space? Should should issuers be thinking differently about structuring deals, types of credit, maturity, all of those things we have to think about when we're putting a deal into the market? Is that the same basic set of considerations for the Muni SMA space, or are there kind of unique considerations that we ought to be thinking about to make credit as uh, as appealable as possible to Muni SMA investors? Yeah, the importance of a retail order period can't be underestimated. You know, it's really the domestic buyer that pays tax that's the dominant investor for for issuers. Obviously, you know, I think it's advertising what the benefits of that retail order period are, and more, more importantly, documenting to make sure you're getting the, the type of investors that you're really targeting and having a, a pretty sound process ar- around that. I think issuers can do more in terms of, you know, on the advertising front, just raising awareness besides the local project or entity that we're financing. What is the demographic area? You know, the U.S. is a beautiful place and to some of its parts, all 50 states and many localities and all the infrastructure that we provide, the the revenue generated to support a lot of these infrastructure projects are obviously a function of their demographic area and who's using the services. And are you an agricultural rich? state? Are you a state that's, you know, abiding to low, you know, in this low carbon transition phase that we're going through? If you're in a natural disaster area, what have you done different to guard against some of those risks? So there's a lot, I think, that you can go about advertising or educating your investor base to increase comfort. I think another thing is just, you know, highlighting the regulatory environment. The MSRB does a fabulous job promoting equality within the market, transparency, this market's very different than than the corporate bond market and how that's governed by the SEC. And just just highlighting some of the things that are established in that industry. I think it has less to do about issuers modeling maturities or getting really acute to to structuring risks or coupons or whatever for the retail audience. You know, let's face it, lifestyles are a lot shorter in terms of their liability and needs as an investment vehicle versus an issuer that's looking to issue debt for a balance budget or a longer tail, you know, infrastructure project. So there's a mismatch there. And I don't think it's it's um, easily solved in that case. I would just say, you know, the market is very different than corporate bonds. I mean, the average deal size is 30, 35 million. You know, the average index eligibility, I don't know, is what, 75 million minimum. There's not a lot of municipalities that meet that bill. And a lot of the benefits can be talked about and discussed in those lower thresholds and how do you go about accessing the market. It's a regional-based system with over 100 different different regional broker-dealers traded very much differently than, than other markets. And helping investors you know, not only at navigate or partner up with an asset management firm, but what are the various roles of all the broker-dealers regionally-based as well, I think is another important point. James, we talk often on this podcast about disclosure of all sorts, financial disclosure, the narrative part of disclosure, just following up on what we were just saying, from your vantage, uh, is there anything different uh, or additional that that issuers ought to be thinking about when they think about just getting that information out there into the investor community? Yeah, it's tough. I mean, you know, like I said before, we're we're not governed by the SEC, so we don't have routine disclosure, ongoing disclosure, if you will. Things are 
done very differently than you, what people may know in other industries, other bond markets. It's incredibly difficult to get information in this market. It's why it's a relationship business. It's why you partner up with skilled labor. That skilled labor is, is transitioning in recent years, less at big box shops and more at boutique services. And one of the benefits we're trying to deliver here is how do you extract that information, build build better portfolio construction, more sleep well investments. You know, you have to you have to have the experience to be able to to know where to get it and who to contact. And you know, I think issuers have done a lot building a capital markets division, building websites to deliver that transparency. You have platforms like Bloomberg that have been a tremendous resource in terms of displaying that information. Uh, and you have obviously a lot of tech startups, like including IPO, that is doing a good job getting the word out on new issues and help streamlining that workflow. So there's a lot of moving parts in its entirety. I mean, the muni market is very different and you can't discount what those differences are. So James, we've talked a lot about SMEs in particular, uh, but obviously you have a, I'm sure, a take on broader trends in the muni space. I wonder if you could tell us any of the trends, particularly that issuers ought to be aware of. We've talked so far here today about technology, some of the changes in asset management writ large. I'm sure there's plenty of others that, that come to mind. So when you think from your vantage, uh, what should issuers in particular be thinking about when they think about what the muni market's going to look like in the next uh, couple of years? God, I got a lot of thoughts on this one. You know, I'd say from a macro sense, you know, buckle up. There is a high degree of risk out there. You know, we seem to be in a vicious cycle. Higher rates cause higher interest expense, cause more debt issuance, you know, in terms of the federal government with the debt and deficit. So have good insight and, you know, an active approach to, to managing access to the market and partnering up with the, the right banks and right bankers to, to deliver the right solution and create the best execution. So that's one thing. I mean, the other part is, you know, the, the, the regulatory landscape is is changing dramatically. The tax-exempt muni market typically gets caught up with the post-Trump's tax reform, the sunset provisions come 2025, but there's other things that are happening. We mentioned solvency too. We mentioned things that have changed with the National Association of Insurance Commissioners. We we talked about UN sustainability development goals, the low carbon transition. So this extends beyond just state tax policy. And they lend favor to certain credits and certain structures. Understand what those are. How do you manage your, your market access to appease a lot of different buyers? So I think there's a lot of research education that needs to have occur on, on what's changing globally and how it impacts the use case for muni bonds and issuers can take advantage of that. The other thing too is, I mean, I think there's a hidden tax in rural areas within the muni market. And we're talking rural areas being urban, densely populated, often defined as black and Latino, which is unfair and uh, not justified. And, you know, similar can be said about natural disaster areas. And what more can issuers or states where those localities reside, dealing with those issues and wanting to do better for their, their, their tax base. Is it state intercept systems? Is it bond banks? 
you know, with states, there could be for issuers a way to more thoughtfully use interstates, intercept systems or bond banks as, as one driver in these, you know, hidden tax rule areas that are that are just unfairly being being hit in terms of uh, their financing rates. I think the other part too is that taxable muni market is is a pretty important component to uh, to focus on, you know, especially as wealth grows and focus on inequality becomes more of an issue. Look, monoline insurance is back, you know, and I think there's, you know, especially in the SMA world, I think there's less emphasis on um, brand awareness and more focused on skilled labor and the talent retention of the quality of service. And thanks to the monoline insurance presence that's providing a wrap solution for, you know, some struggling credits or even credits to give the end users um, surety and sleep well investments, I think is a fantastic change. We lived through a lot of years where both issuers and investors were shunning the monolines. And, you know, we, we strongly encourage the use of, you know, Assured and Build America Mutual, some fantastic companies. Probably the last two things on my mind are just, you know, there's, there's an increasing number of providers, a bigger pool of private capital that's out there. If the market's too onerous in terms of its financing expense, there's a lot of pent up demand for U.S. infrastructure assets in the private markets. So think differently about your approach and engage possibly a different audience if you're a riskier creditor subject to more competition that may not get favorable treatment at your, your bank or your typical approach. Probably the last thing is, you know, growing in focus with debt and deficit is just what's your ability to actually collect tax. And what are you doing about all the loopholes or can you do anything and how are you addressing it? So closing the tax gap and the proactive approach to unpaid bills, you know, besides all the transparency and disclosure that we talked about, I think is another thing on my mind. Very interesting. I would just to briefly go back to the point about uh, monoline insurers, I would Remind our audience that we're proudly sponsored by Build America Mutual. <laughs> I did not know that. <laughs> unsolicited Wait, plug. <laughs> unsolicited, exactly. It lined up just right for us. James, you left BlackRock, which is one of the most important asset managers uh, in the world, to join 16Rock, which is smaller, uh, relatively new. Other than the word rock, which you seem to like in the title of a firm, what motivated that move? And and as a muni specialist, what are, are there distinct advantages to working at a, a smaller shop versus a, a large one? Look, you know, I'm a I'm a 30 year seasoned veteran in this industry, focused on muni bonds. I have you know a portfolio manager, chief investment officer here at 60 Rock. I have high conviction. You know, I'm willing to put my money where my mouth is. I had a uh, a view on this world that, you know, 21, 22, and even 23 is going down as what's called the Great Reset. I define that as look around, large layoffs, mostly skilled labor. Junior talent was the war over the last several years. You've had consolidation of business units. You have technology gutting the middle to streamline processes. You have major change that's happening at the core of, of the asset management industry that is impacting the biggest brands in the biggest way. You have an industry um, that's really tough to scale. And I think a lot of shops get to the point, you know, and this is speaking holistically about the market where too big begins to work to your disadvantage in this sense that, you know, the market has an average deal size of 30 million that spreads really thin if you're running a lot of assets. 
to be able to cover the market in its entirety offers the ability to generate the best return with the most sure principal protection. You know, it's often the smaller deal sizes and more acute focused projects that can deliver the best solution for a client. And I just have this big vision on the on the industry and the market that I think is deserving of a, a, a boutique boutique shop, a specialty shop. You know, 16 Rock was a, a plug and play for me. You know, they had all the infrastructure in terms of trading capabilities. You know, as much experience uh, as I have, I couldn't do this alone. And I needed to surround myself with some really smart and talented people. And part of this, too, is just doing it at this time is, you know, the market's got to have great tailwind. I mean, you have to have some forces behind your back. You know, a little bit of luck comes into play. So the fact that rates are called 300 basis points higher off the lows, maybe there's imminent risk of a recession or maybe there's not, but there's tremendous tailwind that's not only within the industry, but at your back in terms of fixed income, especially muni bonds. That has, has certainly helped drive some of the decisions. Well, thank you so much, James Pruskowski. Chief Investment Officer for 16 Rock Asset Management. We really appreciate you giving us some time today here at the Public Money Pod. Justin Liz, thank you so much. Great talking to you. Thanks again to James. He gave us a lot of good insights, especially there at the end. I mean, we talked about the kind of the litany list of, of um, things that he was watching. He's a he's a busy man. Um, and now I think we both have a lot of ideas about things to go poke around and look at us, ourselves as well. This week's story for, for Rip from the Headlines is from Bloomberg. It's by Shruti Singh, and it's about Chicago's recent bond sale. This is plural. <laughs> it's and it's titled Chicago Luring Bond Buyers on Improved Ratings, Market and Market Tone. Here's the gist of it. So Chicago institutions between the city, between the Board of Ed and the uh, up still still to be sold Park District bonds, between those three, they're selling, they're borrowing, excuse me, more than a billion dollars this week. And and it says that the sale is helped by Wall Street's improved outlook on the city and a bright and, and that sale is also a bright spot in what has been a bleak year for the municipal market. Uh, so just real quick, the city sold $513 million in refunding bonds for the airport for Midway. This week is the sale of Chicago Board of Ed's $600 million in debt. Interestingly, it says the school bonds will be one of the few large high yield deals from an issuer with an improving outlook. The third one is the Chicago Park District. Uh, interestingly, they, they haven't sold yet. They're planning a uh, just under 200 million debt sale. They planned it earlier this month, but then the deal is now day to day because of the volatile market. So what has happened, uh, as I'm sure you know, Justin, and some of our listeners know, is that Chicago has gotten upgraded twice by Fitch ratings in the last year or so, most recently, uh, just this past week, to Triple B Plus and other ratings agencies as well. So Chicago is out of junk status officially. Uh, Moody's upgraded it as well. So its credit outlook clearly is improving. There's also the fact that it's been a really rough year in the municipal bond market. It's made issuers rather gun shy. The article notes that uh, the Fed Reserve's rate rate hike cycle that began in March of last year has depressed bond returns and include including a 2% loss for munis so far in 2023. Uh, regarding the bond sale, uh, Chicago's CFO Jill Jaworski said uh, that they were pleased with the, the efforts of the, the midway sale and that it was well managed in what she called a challenging interest rate environment. So all in all, the city received 67 orders, excuse me, from 67 investors generated almost 
17 million in savings from the sale. That's kind of the the lay of the land here for Chicago. Justin, what do you make of this in light of some of the conversation we had with James about investors and how they look at muni bonds? Yeah, I'm glad we have a chance to to talk about it. And it, uh, number one, it's a chance to give a shout out to Shruti Singh, who does uh, really great work at Bloomberg covering Chicago and also the national municipal bond market. So nice to have a chance to talk about one of her pieces. We track a lot of these things here at the center, and it's worth mentioning a couple data points. If you're familiar at all with our what we call our CMF Muni Index, it's a we go out and we track investor sentiment toward a bunch of cities, counties, school districts, and it gives you an idea of essentially the the interest rates that cities, counties, and school districts are are borrowing at today relative to past trends. As you had mentioned, Liz, you know that index tells us that it's been a, a rough year for the market as of the 20th of October the index is down about 11% year over year. So that, in other words, on average, we're seeing interest rates that are about 11% higher. That's not 100, that's not 11% as in uh, 1100 basis points, but it's just 11% higher yields than they were last year. And prices are are down 11% over this time last year. And that was on top of a really bad year in the year preceding this year. So that we've been, it's just this sort of constant, headwinds in the market over the last two years or so. When you look at that index, what's really interesting, we, we go and we look at 35 large cities. If you, if you had to guess right now, you would probably not guess that the number one city in that index is Chicago. Chicago is actually borrowing at, at yields that are slightly below when uh, the same rates at basically at the start of COVID. Just about every other large city we track is borrowing at yields that are higher than than pre-COVID. And again, a lot of that is due to the fact that the market has been really, really struggling as of late. Chicago, uh, both the city and then the school district also is at the top. Interestingly enough, um, the bottom city at the moment is San Francisco, which is borrowing at considerably higher interest rates than it was pre-COVID. It goes back to some degree to the point that we were making earlier about investor perceptions. There's sort of nothing but bad news coming out of San Francisco right now. And yet it's still a AAA rated credit. And yet it still has really strong underlying financial fundamentals. So a lot of that is clearly investors responding to news, right? And and really maybe buying the story of San Francisco's, you know, downtown doom spiral and some other things that we've talked about on this podcast before. I think what you're seeing in the, in the story that the tree mentioned is in Chicago, there's a lot of investors who seem to have sort of understood that that perception of Chicago, which had been on a downward slide like many, has created a real buying opportunity. As the financial fundamentals have improved, there's still this perception that Chicago is struggling. The prices of bonds in the market might sort of have reflected that up to this point. But clearly, the city, the school district, the parks district saw an opportunity here to say, there's not a lot of new issuance coming into the market. Investor sentiment toward all things Chicago is improving. If we go to the market now with an attractive package, we'll probably have investors go in and snap those bonds up, which seems to be exactly what happened. So it's an interesting confluence of a bunch of different trends that we've been following. And it really speaks to a lot of what we've talked about on this podcast in this episode today, which is you know the importance of investor perceptions. Thanks again to our season two sponsors, Build America Mutual, MuniPro, Odyssey Advisors, and the Government Finance Officers Association. The Public Money Pod is a production of the Center for Municipal Finance at the University of Chicago's Harris School of Public Policy, where we are proudly produced by Hannah Burnick. 
You can learn more about the center and its work at munifinance.uchicago.edu. That's munifinance.uchicago.edu. You can learn more about Liz Farmer's work at her substack, Long Story Short. That's Long Story Short. Thanks again for listening. We'll catch you next time on The Public Money Podcast.